Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey speaks on five lessons we can learn from the 10 plagues of Egypt. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. So last week, um, we started uh, talking about the 10 plagues of Egypt and the judgment Um, that God was pouring out on the nation of Egypt. And we actually didn't really hit any of the plagues. Instead, what we did is we looked at um, kind of two key premises that we needed to keep in the forefront of our mind as we are reading the text. Uh, And then we talked predominantly about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and and, and what that looks like and why that's kind of important for us to to know. And and what I want to do is before we get into the plagues today, I actually need to recap at least those first two principles um, that we discussed because they're really important as we are going through the text in Exodus. The first thing I said, the first thing I started off with last week, if you remember, was I quoted uh, Moses from Exodus 33. And he had uh, a cry of his heart that was this, teach me your ways that I may know you. Teach me your ways that I may know you. And if you recall, the thing that I said is that if we are to know God, that means we have to know his ways. And if we're going to know his ways, that demands that we know his word. And the danger is there are many of us who can can walk this Christian thing out, not knowing the word, but thinking that we know God. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not saved. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to be saved. That's the beauty of it. But you do have to know your word if you want intimacy. Moses said, to know your ways is for me to get to know you. And so, Lord, I want to know your ways. I want to know your word, not as what I said was a badge of honor, of knowledge, so that we can get puffed up, but as a means to intimacy and closeness with the Lord, which is what this whole thing has been about from the very beginning. Now, here's why I say that, because we're getting ready to see some ways of God that are hard, they're harsh, they're painful. And if we are to know God, that means we are to know his word in the whole counsel of his word, not just the gospels, not just Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, not just Romans 5, which you'll hear me quote all the time, that that God loved us while while we were his enemies and, and died for us, not just that, If we're to know God, we need to know the entire counsel of his word. And I want to take a moment and remind you of how important the Old Testament is. I had somebody ask me not too long ago, why the Old Testament? Why are you going through the Old Testament? Now, here's the thing. If you you remember, uh, Paul would tell Timothy, uh, he would say, hey, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for teaching and training and correcting and reproof and exhortation. And and he would command Timothy, I want you to go through the scriptures and I want you to teach the scriptures and I want you to read the scriptures. But here's the thing, when Paul's writing that, he's not talking about the New Testament because there was New Testament. There was no New Testament. He's referencing the Old Testament. And so what he's saying to a first century Christian pastor is, hey, take the flock through the Old Testament. Because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And what we tend to do here in the West is we tend to make much to do about the New Testament. And we, we just kind of look at the Old Testament maybe when we're in kids' ministry because they're fun stories. 
But the reality is the Old Testament is so important. And it's in the Old Testament often that you come across the hardest passages to grapple with. And if we are to know God, if I, if I am to, 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 to help get us to a place of intimacy with the Father, that means that we have to grapple with the entirety of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, the sweet and the bitter, the hard and the easy, the good news and the bad news. Yes, the gospel is good news, but it's only good news because there's bad news first. Okay? So what we're going to do today is we are going to try to run after Exodus's, or uh, uh, Moses' statement in Exodus and say, Lord, teach me your ways that I may know you. So you need to keep that in the forefront of your mind. The second thing that I told you was that we are trying to be like the Berean church in Acts chapter 17. And the thing about the Bereans is, is Luke would write in the book of Acts that they were more noble than all the Jews of Thessalonica. And that they were more noble because they would search the scriptures daily and examine them. And so what we are to do as Bereans is to take a look at the scripture and say, it doesn't matter what it says, it reigns supreme over my life. So when it hurts, like a Berean, we're going to embrace the pain. When it causes us confusion, like a Berean, we're going to dig deeper. And when it offends us, which it should probably offend you a few times, that's when we humbly bow in submission and we say, we know nothing. And you are God. And everything you say is good, right, and true. You say, well, why on earth are we talking about this? Because we're getting ready to talk about the 10th plague, the angel of death. And one of the things I asked you to um, remember, and I, I believe it's actually a point here in my message, is that God is not just the God who saves. He's also the God who kills. He's also the God who judges. And clearly, that's not a very popular message today. So I'm going to do my best to present that before you but my hope in my prayer is that you will allow it to challenge you, convict you, but ultimately it would lead you towards greater intimacy with the Father because you would know his ways in its entirety. Amen? So last week we talked about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. This week I'm going to give you five lessons from the 10 plagues. Five lessons from the 10 plagues. Lord willing, we're going to get through them. If not, we'll just wrap it up next week. Um, before we do that, though, I wanna, I'm going to hit the narrative just in the Bible real quick. Um, so uh, it's a quick recap. I'm not going to give all the Bible that I gave last time. But we're going to start in Exodus 4 because this is important. We're going to talk about Exodus 4 uh, in our first point. This is uh, verses 21 through 23. And the Lord, this is at the burning bush. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Afterwards, uh, what would happen is Moses would do exactly what God told him to do. 
And Pharaoh would scoff. And Pharaoh would say, who is this God that I should listen to him? And this is, um, this is, uh, oh, Lord, help me. Uh, I totally lost my thought. Exodus chapter five, let me read that. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not go to Israel. So now here we get to it. Afterwards, Moses has just done everything that God's told him to do, but it doesn't work. And Moses gets offended and he gets angry and he comes to the Lord. And I want you to see what he says. He says, then Moses turned to the Lord. Oh Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses does exactly what he's supposed to do, thinking that God's going to cause Pharaoh to let his people go, but it doesn't happen. And instead what happens is Israel's labor is increased and their life is made more difficult and more hard. And now Moses has to grapple with a very difficult question, why didn't this work? Later on, we get to the plagues and it says, um, chapter seven, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let my people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out into the waters, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. And afterwards, the magicians would figure out a way to copy that and then we'd get the next plague and then we'd get another plague and then the court's magicians would try to stop that or would try to copy that, but they couldn't. And eventually the magicians themselves, Pharaoh's pagan, godless, sorcerer-loving magicians, actually point out, they say, yeah, we can't make this happen. This must be the finger of God. This actually must be the Lord. Maybe we should consider repenting Moses or uh, uh, Pharaoh. And it says that Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. It said, you hit a plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. You hit a plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. You hit a plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Every time God says, let my people go, it says that Pharaoh entrenches himself in disobedience and rebellion and says, no, I will not until we get to the 10th plague. And the 10th plague gets very real. The 10th plague is actually the fulfillment of what God talked about in Exodus 4, when he said that Israel is my firstborn son, and if you don't let my firstborn son go, I will kill your firstborn son. That's the narrative of the 10 plagues. You, so I asked you to read uh, he, or Exodus 7 through 12 uh, in, our, in the week that we were away. And I hope that some of you did. Let's get into five lessons learned from the plagues. I'm not going to hit each plague because that would take way too much time. Um, here's five lessons. Okay, you ready? Sometimes you can do all that God asks of you, yet it can seemingly fail. Sometimes you can do all that God asks of you, yet it can seemingly fail. Now, this is like really important, and it's probably the most pastoral point that I'm going to make all night. You can knock it out of the park. You can do everything right. 
You can give the prophetic word with such clarity and such power and such unction with its verbatim what the Lord is saying. You can do miracles that defy all odds and expectations. You can, you can hit it at the exact right time in the exact right way and still it may seem to fail. That's what Moses did. God said, hey, go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go and perform this miracle and show him that I am truly the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses does exactly what God tells him to do. And yet Pharaoh doesn't let his people go. You can imagine the disappointment in Moses' mind, in his heart, and it records for us, and I read it earlier, the conversation that would take place. He basically turns around and says, Lord, what the heck? You told me to do this. I was completely and totally obedient. I didn't even want to do this, God. I told you to send someone else, and you told me to go. You told me to stick my neck out. You told me to put my reputation on the line. I was happy. I was fine where I was. I had a family. I had a good reputation. I begged you not to send me. You told me to go. You told me to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, and he didn't. And not only did he not do that, he made it worse for them. And now my own people hate me and are trying to accurse me. And he asked this question, why did you ever send me? Sometimes you can do all that God asks and requires of you, and it can fail. And here's why. See, you and I, we're human beings. We think very one-dimensional. We think very linear, okay? We think A plus B equals C. I'll give you an example. I'm going to make this example up, but I think it works. Imagine you get called to India, and it's stunning. Did you feel called to India? Yeah, well, oh, I think I knew that, actually. Yeah, thus says the Lord. Just kidding. Imagine you feel called to go to India. That's weird. What, I, that's a, I'm, we don't, yeah, I don't know. You imagine you feel called to go to India, Wesley, okay? And you get prophetic words all over the place. You're in the altar and you hear the very voice of God come down and say, Wesley, I am calling you to India to go do missions, to preach the gospel. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's what you're to do. Let me show you how we tend to think. We think linear. So when we hear that command, this is what we think. There's a need in India. God is sending me to meet the need. There are people who are lost in India. God is calling me to go preach the gospel to see people saved in India. That's a fair assumption, right? But here's the thing. It is completely and totally possible that the Lord is calling you to do missions in India and it has nothing to do with seeing people saved in India. We think 
so linearly and we tend to put our expectations of God in a little box that says, God's calling me to India, therefore I need to go to India and I'm gonna preach the gospel and I'm gonna see revival. But the problem is, God had a very different standard and measure of success. Maybe God wasn't sending you to accomplish something. Maybe he was sending you to instill something in you. Maybe he was trying to teach you how to deal with failure. Maybe he was sending you across the world so that you could get rid of some idolatry issues in your heart. But here's the thing. We don't think like that. You see, God's thinking three-dimensional. He's saying, I will get you there under this guise, but it actually may not be for the purpose that you think. And I cannot tell you the conversations that I have had with people who had a very clear word and direction from the Lord. They thought linearly. They assumed this is what the, the, the accomplishment was supposed to look like. And it looks radically different. And so when revival doesn't hit in India and they've seen three people get saved in five years, then it's basically just been suffering and grueling and hard. They immediately start to second guess. Maybe this was all a waste. Maybe I missed something. I must have missed something. There's no way this was what God had for me. And I've had so many conversations where people get so disheartened because they've done, they've done exactly what God asked them to do, but it got a different result than they were expecting. And my hope is that when that happens to you, and rest assured, it's going to happen to you. It may not be missions to India. It may be a particular school, a particular relationship, a particular friendship. It could be, it could be anything where you know that God's calling you to do A, B, and C. but do not assume it's supposed to have the result that you think it should. And my hope is that when it does happen to you, you will remember Moses' conversation to the Lord. And you'll remember that actually you're in a really, uh, uh, you're, you're in really good company because Moses had the same thing happen. God, I did everything you said to do. I risked it all. Where were you? And I can't help but think that God was intentionally trying to get something in Moses that was going to set him up and equip him to be everything that God was calling him to be down the road. And so here's the idea. I don't want you to get in the same um, rut and, and to make the same mistake that I see so many people make, which is you get disheartened and offended by God because he didn't do what you thought he should do. Maybe the Lord is calling you to India and maybe, maybe you will see people saved. That's awesome. But I can just assure you of something. God is always far more concerned about doing something inside of you than he is doing something with you. Promise. And so when you find yourself on that plane ride to India and you know what it's gonna look like and you've got all kinds of expectations, Revival in the streets, house churches everywhere. You need to take a step back and you need to inquire of the Lord. And you need to say, okay, God, I am not demanding any result. And if you're gonna bring me across the world and all that you want to do is tell me that you love me, that's good enough for me. Because the goal is not results, the goal is obedience. 
And as a Christian, you and I have to understand that that's all that we're responsible for. We are not responsible for the results. We are only ever responsible for obedience. So Moses, he he does everything that God tells him to do and God doesn't show up. And I, I just love that. Doesn't feel like God's with him. He doesn't feel favor. No open doors there. And he turns around and this is what he says. He says, oh Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? So now he's starting to assign blame because God didn't meet his expectations. So he's gonna do the same thing that Adam did. The woman whom you gave me. That's what happens when we get offended. That's what happens when things don't go our way. We start blaming God. He said, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? And why did you ever send me? For ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, all he has done is evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. You let that just sit in for a second. Can you imagine what he's feeling? He turns around and he goes, what the heck, God? And this leads me to my next point. Sometimes we hear what we want to hear. We hear what we want to hear. Do you remember the first thing that I read to you in in, in, uh, Exodus chapter four? God said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to let my people go but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. God already told him what was gonna happen. Think about that for a moment. So Moses turns around and he goes, what the heck, God? And God's like, what do you mean, what the heck? What the heck? I told you. Don't don't put that on me. I told you exactly what was gonna happen. You go to Pharaoh, you do the miracles, you give the message, I harden his heart. He's not gonna let the people of Israel go. Give him another warning about the firstborn son. I told you exactly how this was gonna play out. The problem isn't me, the problem is you. You heard what you wanted to hear, Moses. You got so excited that I'm speaking to you and in your zeal, you cut me off mid-sentence. And you made an entire plan and a set of expectations around something I didn't even get to finish talking to you about. But isn't that what we do? We hear what we want to hear. God specifically laid it out, and yet for some reason, Moses shows up to Pharaoh expecting Pharaoh to let his people go. And then when it doesn't happen, Pharaoh turns or Moses turns around and gets angry at God and says, how could you do this? It's such an interesting case study because I see myself so often in the life of Moses. We often place wrong expectations on the Lord. And when he doesn't meet those wrong expectations, we get angry, confused, and offended. Angry, confused, and offended. That's how I would describe Moses in this moment. Now that's why I said and started with, teach me your ways that I may know you. Because if you don't know God, you are ripe to be angry, confused, and offended 
when he decides he's going to work outside of your expectations in your little box. Teach me your ways that I may know you. I'm going to tell you something. If you see it in scripture, that means there's precedent for you or precedent for it in your life. And so if God doesn't come through for Moses in the way that Moses thinks, it's very possible that could happen to you. And here's the thing, this idea of, of I hear what I want to hear and, and I place this wrong expectation on what I think things are supposed to look like. And then when it doesn't go my way, I get offended, angry, and confused. That's not unique to Moses. The first example that comes to mind is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, just like Moses, does everything right. He preaches the forerunner message. He fulfills the scriptures. He dies to himself daily. He gives himself to the message of repentance. He baptizes people and let people know, listen, it's not about me. It's all about the one who's coming after me. And then, and then when Jesus comes on the scene, he gives them all of his crowds and he says, you have to increase and I have to decrease and I'm happy to do so. It gives me joy. John the Baptist nailed it. And then after the crowds have left him, after his disciples have left him, he finds himself speaking truth to the king of the day and it ends up with him in jail awaiting his own execution where he's getting ready to lose his head. Same moment. What the heck, God? This isn't what I signed up for. You told me to go preach the forerunner message. I did that. You told me to give it all. I did that, but this is not what I expected. So here's what he does. He takes uh, his disciples and he says, hey, go ask Jesus. Is he really the Messiah? Or should I be expecting someone else? In other words, was my entire life in vain? Because I'm beginning to question as I'm looking at the blade that's getting ready to chop off my head, I am really questioning whether or not this thing is legit because it's not going the way that I thought it was gonna go. And I love what Jesus responds with. So his disciples say, hey, uh, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And he says, go and tell John the things which you hear and the things which you see. The blind see, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So right there, what he's saying is, hey, if you knew my ways, you would know me because he starts showing all the ways that Jesus fulfills the scriptures. Go show John all of the ways that I fulfill the scriptures. That should be sufficient. That's his message. And then he tags this little line and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. He's only saying that because he understands that John is offended with him. And John is offended with him for the same reason that Moses was offended with him in the book of Exodus. Because somewhere along the lines, whether he heard what he wanted to hear or whether he thought too linearly, he was thinking that the result was not going to look like this. And guys, we're so 
we can so often get dangerously close to being exactly where Moses was and exactly where John the Baptist was because we place expectations on the Lord that he never said he would meet. And when he doesn't meet them, we can get offended. Now, why is this so important? Because if you think, let's get real practical. Imagine for a second that you've neglected the word most of your life. And here's what I mean by neglected the word. The only times that you got into the word were when you showed up to service once or twice a week. And somehow, perhaps, maybe you've, you've thought that you've really understood the Lord and that you really know the Lord and, and, and maybe you know parts of him, right? And we all kind of know parts of him anyway because he's infinite, but, but, but maybe you've convinced yourself that you're something that you're not, but you've completely missed passages like this. You've completely missed all the judgments that are mentioned both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you've never given yourself perhaps to even, to even open the book of Revelation because, well, that's just, it's too, it's too hotly debated, so I'm not even gonna try to read the words of life. And you miss the fact that when God comes back, he's gonna do Exodus 2.0 and that there's gonna be plagues again, culminating with judgments that start killing a third of the earth at a time. And God all of a sudden doesn't start to look like what you thought he should look like and doesn't start to act like what you thought he would act like. You may find yourself in the same position that Moses and John the Baptist found themselves in. Angry, confused, and offended. It's one of the reasons that we're preaching through the Bible that's why I'm not giving you just an identity message. That's why I'm just not telling you how to have a good life or just how to cut out your sin problem. Guys, if we're going to know God and we're going to keep our heart protected from offense, then we've got to get in the text. We've got to get in the word. And we've got to allow that to say anything in the Bible is a possibility and here's the thing, if you can read through the book of Exodus and see these 10 plague narratives and get to the place where the angel of death comes on and he starts slaying every firstborn son, and you can get to the place where you say, God is still good and he's still just and he is still true, then you're probably gonna be okay when judgment starts hitting the earth if it happens in our lifetime. But if you can't even see a text like this without questioning God's goodness and wrestling with, well, is God really good? I mean, he's starting to, he's starting to kill what seems like innocent firstborn children. If you can't, if you can't comprehend that, that God's still good just from the text, imagine how hard it's going to be when it's hitting the earth. That's why this is so important that we have right expectations of the Lord and that those expectations are biblical. Otherwise, we are right before offense. Now, I have no idea if we're gonna live if we are the generation that's gonna see those judgments that hit the earth. I have no clue. I've got an opinion, but I'm 31 years old. My opinion's not worth a whole lot right now. But the fact remains, the Bible should set our expectations about what the Lord can and cannot do or will and will not do. Let's put it that way. 
I used to tell people all the time, and you'll even hear me sometimes say, don't put God in a box. I think I just said it, right? But here's the thing. Um, I would, people kind of like some of the, bless them, you know, the little, what's the right word? The real charismatic Christians, they'd come up and they'd be like, you're just putting God in a box. And this is what I would say. God put himself in a box. And it's called the Bible. Moreover, if you read your Bible, you would know that he legitimately put himself in a box called the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I say it totally tongue-in-cheek, right? Here's what I mean by don't, here's what I mean by that. God did put himself in a box, but it's a really big box. There are things in this box called the Holy Bible that will blow your mind. And if we're to understand the ways of God, we've got to understand the box. We've got to see how he operates. We've got to understand uh, what's his motive behind things, what is realistic to expect of the Lord. And right here, we see that God really doesn't care about meeting our expectations. And one of the biggest dangers in keeping our, our, and getting our heart offended is that we hear what we want to hear. Okay. Number three, here's the third lesson that the 10 plagues will teach us. Some people, no matter how well they are ministered to, will never accept the Lord. Some people, no matter how well they are ministered to, will ever accept the Lord. There are those of you in the room, and you have a a deep love for people. You've got that evangelistic spirit about you. But even more than that, you're just a Christian. And as a Christian, you love people. All people. You love the sinner, you love the saint, the young, the old, the gay, the straight, black, white. You don't care, you just love people and you want to see people saved because you love them and you love Jesus. And I love that about you. And we ought, everyone in this room ought to aspire to do that. But what can happen sometimes, and I've seen it not just in my own life, I've watched it in believers' lives where they, they start to minister to somebody who God has maybe placed in their life, you know, whether it's a coworker or a, a fellow student, or maybe it's a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister, and, and, and your heart begins to grow deep with affection for them. And you start going, I just want to see them saved. And you do everything you can. And you're not just in it once for, for one gospel message, man. You're in it for life. You're in it for years. You are going to invite them into your life. You're going to invite them to church. You're going to process with them what the Lord's doing with you. You're going to preach the gospel. You're going to live the gospel. You're going to do it all. But it seems like no matter what you do, they just won't say yes. And in our era, we tend, to, we tend to talk a lot about revival and we, we tend to talk a lot about laborers. We just had a big conference that a lot of our guys went up to that I absolutely, I didn't go, but I loved. I got to watch some of the sessions, the send. All about going, preaching the gospel, seeing our campuses saved and seeing our, our workplaces saved and seeing our homes saved. And all of those things are great. But there is a a truth that we have to grapple with and we have to wrestle with whether we like it or not that Jesus himself said this, 
The way is broad that leads to destruction and many will find it. And narrow is the path that leads to eternal life and few will find it. Now that is not an excuse for hopelessness and it's certainly not an excuse to not share the gospel or to live the gospel. But what it should do is help you to understand that like Pharaoh, there are people out there who no matter how great a prophetic word, no matter how powerful a miracle, no matter how well articulated the gospel is, no matter how much you pick them up out of the miry clay of their sin, no matter how many times you go pick them up from the party because they're too drunk to drive home, no matter how well you do, they may not say yes. As a matter of fact, there's probably a good chance they won't. Did you know what the call is anyway? We still serve them. We still love them. We don't quit. But I want you to hear me. The point of me saying this is it is not your fault. And the tendency is when it doesn't happen is for us to blame ourselves. If I had only articulated it better, if I'd only had the answer to the question, if I'd only prayed more, if I'd only died to myself a little bit more, we begin to take the blame. I've been at camps, literally, where people have put, I've, I've watched the, the evangelist go out there and say, hey, if, if that unsaved friend dies tonight and he goes to hell, it's your fault because you didn't do your job as a faithful evangelist. I've heard that said from the pulpit. Now that's crazy. And we would never articulate that, but here's the reality. We feel it. I will never forget when my friend, my closest friend growing up, the one friend that I actually kept when I met Jesus, when he committed suicide pulled out to a field, put the gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. I will never forget the guilt that I felt. It's my fault, Lord. I should have ministered to him more. Should have given him more. I should have been a better witness. It's my fault. Here's the deal. It's not my fault. It's not your fault because you're not the savior. You're the messenger. And I think that's the thing that we can forget if we are not careful, that our job is not to save anyone. It is to simply give the message. We give the message and we live the message and we let the chips fall where they may. And if anybody needs anything, we're there to help. We're there to love. We're there to serve. But just like Pharaoh, there are people out there, no matter how well you nailed it, they still will say no. Pharaoh had the absolute perfect witness, not once, not twice, but actually 11 times because he gets a little precursor before the 10 plagues start happening. And no amount of miracles could change his heart. Miracles don't produce faith. The gospel produces faith. No amount of prophetic utterance could change his heart. 
No amount of consequences for his sin could change his heart. And the reality is there are people out there like that. Now, again, that does not mean that we are lazy, that we don't preach the gospel. That does not mean that we don't love. That does not mean that we don't hope. And that certainly does not mean that we don't pray. But it does mean that we live outside and out from under the pressure of having to be everybody's savior. You're not. My admonition to you, live the gospel, preach the gospel, and that's it. That's what you're responsible for. Once again, you're responsible for obedience, not results. Here is the fourth point, and I've already briefly mentioned it. God is the God of love and the God who kills. God hates sin. He hates it. As fiercely as he loves you, as fiercely as he loves himself, is as fiercely as he hates sin. And you have to understand that he hates sin because he loves people. And sin causes nothing but pain, suffering, death, and destruction on his very creation. And so he hates it. And sin has caused other people to oppress, to cause untold suffering to his creation. And while God is good, yes, he is good. He's also just. And those two, they're intertwined. And one day God will punish as a means to rid the earth of all traces of sin. Every wrong that was ever done against somebody, God is going to make it right. But in order to do that, he has to judge. And I want you to see that in these 10 plagues, God didn't start out with this. Though he knew the end result at the very beginning, let my firstborn son go, Israel, and if you don't, I'll come after your son. Though he knew the end result, he gave Pharaoh time after time, chance after chance to repent. He did everything he could do. He went far and above and beyond the call of duty. He gives a precursor. Pharaoh, this is where this is going. You gotta let my people go. If, if you don't understand that it's going to come at the cost and the price of your firstborn son, Pharaoh says no. Then God strikes the waters and, and says, now please, will you let my people go? Pharaoh says, no. We get flies and, and frogs and locusts and, 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 and everything gets progressively worse. And every time he refuses to repent. And I'm, I just can't imagine what would have happened if Pharaoh just on the front end had said, hey, you know what? Okay. I repent. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. 
but he didn't. And in God's kindness, that's how he does judgment. He doesn't begin with the 10th plague. He slowly works up and along the lines, he begs and pleads with the heart of humanity. Please repent. If you'll just repent, if you'll just come to me with prayer and fasting, I will make all of this okay again. And so yes, he's just, and yes, he is the God who kills, but it's still good. I'm going to read to you the account of the 10th plague. Starting in chapter 12. Then they shall take some of the blood, and he's giving them, he's giving the Israelites the command, then they shall take some of the blood, they, the lamb that they slaughtered, and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat of the flesh that night, roasting uh, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and butter herbs, or bitter herbs, well, butter herbs, butter herbs, sounds better. Anybody else hungry? And bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Talk about undercutting the moment. And bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, right? So he goes, slaughter the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost, put it on the top of the doorpost, and I want you to eat the flesh of the lamb with some bitter herbs, not butter and herbs, and some unleavened bread. And he said, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. That is a direct response to Pharaoh's first question in Exodus 4. Who is this Lord? I don't know this God, he says. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So there's the instruction. Take the blood, put it on the doorpost, put it on the top of the house, eat the lamb. And he says, when you're eating, don't eat in your PJs. He says, put your shoes on. Get your backpack ready, get your staff in your hand and get ready to move. Because when I, when I come, this thing's gonna get real and it's gonna get real fast. He goes, I will come and I will kill the firstborn of every house that does not have the blood on their doorpost. Now here's the actual account. This is chapter 12, 29 through 31. Now it came about, at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, 
both you and the sons of Israel and go worship the Lord as you have said. One of the things that strikes me in this passage is anytime I've heard it preached, it's always an angel who does it. An angel of death, an angel of the Lord. But if you look at the text, it doesn't say that. It says that God himself comes down and does it. God is the God of love, and he is the God who kills, and you will have to reconcile the two. God is good. I promise you he's good. God is just, and he is true. And yes, for the people of Egypt in that moment, it didn't seem like God was good, but you know who really felt like God was good in the moment? The Israelites, who had just suffered for 400 years of having their firstborn children taken and killed and slaughtered. Do you remember the first decree of this Pharaoh? He comes into power. We talked about it. And he commands the midwives, I want you to kill every son born to the nation of Israel. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I think that was the point of the sermon. And there were one of the points in that sermon. We don't take our own vengeance. So the word tells us that it's accepted and possible for God to produce judgment and judgment that stings and judgment that hurts. And I'm going to end the night with point five. Salvation is through the object of faith, not the intensity of the faith. Have you ever walked into a worship service? Maybe it's ours. And you see there's this really weird pastor who's up there shaking and rocking and shouting Jesus over and over again, a really loud, annoying, droning sound. You walk in and there are people dancing and jumping or weeping and travail. Praying, perhaps in tongues or expressing themselves in a manner that you've never expressed yourself. You ever walk into one of those services and immediately you start to feel like maybe you don't know God? I have. I've been to many environments where I walk in and I see how intense people are going after the Lord and how vibrant their heart is and how vibrant the the expression is. Or I've had conversations with with people when I'm in a real slump with the Lord and I'm talking to them and everything's everything's awesome. They've got the faith to move mountains. Their world is shattering, but they don't care because they love Jesus and everything is good. And in the moment, I feel like this tall. Anybody ever have that experience or is it just me? Where you, you, somebody else's faith that should be a gift to you is flat out annoying. And you start to think, if this is what it looks like to know God, maybe I don't know God. They seem to have something that I don't have. I thought I had God. I am like so addicted to pornography. I am so addicted to drugs. I can't seem to get out of anything. This person, they, 
They must be saved and I'm not saved. There's no way. Then you begin to build the case against yourself. Then this point is for you. I'm gonna tell you a story and I, I, I wish I could take credit for this story. This is um, from a, a pastor who I really recommend that you guys listen to. His name is uh, Don Carson. D.A. Carson. You can, you can Google D.A. Carson. He is um, the founder of a ministry called Gospel Coalition. Yeah, people know Gospel Coalition. He's kind of in the background a lot of the times, but he's a professor and he's, he's brilliant and he tells the story regarding the Passover. And I'm just going to try to quote the story best I can so you understand how important this point is. He says, imagine you have, you have, you have two ancient Hebrews right before the night of the Passover. And he says, he says, one of them, he's really nervous. And he's really scared. He says to the other one, he goes, hey, uh, how you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm really nervous. I mean, this, this, thing, this, thing's getting, this thing's getting a little crazy. As Moses said that God's gonna come down and he's gonna, he's gonna kill the firstborn of everyone. Everyone who doesn't have the, the blood on the doorpost, he's gonna kill the firstborn. And, and then the second guy goes, what's wrong with you? I'm jazzed. We're gonna get liberated, man. It's gonna get good. Why are you nervous? Don't you have the blood on the doorpost? Didn't you, didn't you eat the lamb, right? Didn't you get the, the unleavened bread? And, and aren't you covered? And he's like, well, yeah, I'm really covered, but I mean, this is terrifying. People are getting ready to die. I only got one son and I love him so much. And what if I did something wrong? What if, what if I didn't do it just right? And, and, and what if the angel hits my house? I'll be really happy when this night of judgment is over. And then the other guy says, bring it on. I have all the faith I need. I'm ready. The Lord passes through and he begins to kill the firstborn. The first Passover has begun. Which of the two lost their firstborn? Neither of them. Neither of them. Because both of them had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Salvation comes not through the intensity or the clarity of your faith, but through the blood of the lamb. It does not matter how zealous you are. It does not matter how scared you are. This person over here, they may have faith that moves mountains, man, and it's, and it's annoying and it's frustrating and they're zealous and they're vibrant and it's awesome. And you may be over here going, I believe, but I'm really, really scared. You're still covered in the blood because salvation doesn't come through the intensity of your faith, but the object of your faith. And so it doesn't matter if you're nervous. It doesn't matter if you're scared. It doesn't matter if you're a little shaken. What matters is that you have done what God has asked you to do and you put the blood on the doorposts. Do you believe that God really is who 
He says he is. And then he's really done what he's done. And if you do, then you are saved. And you are covered by the blood of the lamb. And you don't have to question yourself anymore. There is a gift. I you guys to stand. There is a gift in Christianity that we don't talk about very often. It's the gift of Christian assurance. The assurance of our salvation. Many of us, so often, what we do is we struggle and we think that maybe we're not saved. And we hear the voice of the accuser more than we hear the voice of the advocate. And we start thinking, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not zealous enough. Maybe my faith isn't strong enough. And I will just tell you, your faith doesn't need to be strong enough. Your faith just needs to be in the right thing. And that should give you confidence to enter the throne of grace. That should give us confidence in peace, knowing that it's not about how intense our faith is. It's not about how loud our faith is. It's not about how zealous our faith is. And it's not even about how clear our faith is at times. It's about the object. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.